Hello and welcome to the Road to Kyoto podcast. I'm Ian Tennant from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Over the last year, this podcast series has been looking ahead to the 14th UN Congress on Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice. The Congress finally took place in early March 2021, largely online, but it was still nominally hosted in the Japanese city of Kyoto. In this final episode of the Road to Kyoto podcast, I'm speaking to a range of civil society experts who took part in the Congress. In common with most participants, none of us made it to Kyoto, but we all logged in and took part virtually. We are going to discuss why it's important for us as civil society to engage on organized crime issues at platforms like the Crime Congress. And we're also going to discuss what we thought of the Congress in terms of what it said or didn't say about organized crime. And of course, we will look forward. Although we have reached the end of the road to Kyoto, our journey towards a better understanding of and response to organized crime continues. So we will be hearing from our guests about what they see as the priorities for the future. I'm delighted to be here with three prominent experts with different perspectives and experiences of building responses to organized crime. We have Gerson Nazir, who's the country director of Rafa International in Haiti. Rafa is an NGO that provides aftercare for survivors of sexual exploitation and human trafficking and prevention services for the vulnerable. Gerson is working with the support of the Global Initiative Resilience Fund to provide aftercare for underage victims of trafficking and sexual exploitation and to enhance the socioeconomic conditions for local families, including people displaced due to organized criminal activities in low-income neighborhoods of the metropolitan area of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Thank you for joining us today, Gerson. We're also here with Syria Gastelum-Felix, who is the Director of Resilience at the Global Initiative. Syria started documenting community responses to organized crime in her native state of Sinaloa, Mexico, where she launched the GI Resilience Project in 2017, which later became the Resilience Fund with the support of the government of Norway. Syria is an Emmy award-winning journalist who has worked on radio, television, and print media in Mexico, the United States, and Canada, and has worked for the United Nations in Vienna. Thank you for joining us, Syria. Jean-Paul Laborde is a roving ambassador for the Parliamentary Assembly of the Mediterranean, professor of the French Military Academy, and has formerly held senior positions at the UNODC in Vienna, before assuming the functions of Assistant Secretary General in New York as Executive Director of the Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. He's also held other prestigious academic and judicial positions, including as a judge at the French Judicial Supreme Court. And Jean-Paul is also a senior advisor to the Global Initiative. Thank you for joining us today, Jean-Paul. All of us on this podcast today are seeing the effects and realities of organized crime in different ways and chose to come to the Crime Congress and to engage there. And I want to find out why it was important for you to do so. So Gerson, I'm going to go to you first. You're dealing with vulnerable populations at the mercy of organized crime and armed groups in Haiti. Why was this important for you to take time out of your schedule to attend this meeting? And what were you hoping to achieve? Thank you so much for this opportunity to be one of the voices for the civil society sector in this post-Kyoto Crime Congress analysis. The proliferation of violence across the globe in the context of armed gang has had far-reaching humanitarian consequences for disadvantaged and marginalized communities. This form of organized crime has triggered crises of force, internal displacement, and migration on a scale that has put many people at risk for further violence. It has resulted in significant losses for families, more and more have had to abandon all their possessions in order to feed their homes and communities. 
Because violence has not only placed displaced persons in the situations of extreme social and economic vulnerability, but has also exposed many, particularly women and children, to an increased risk of sexual exploitation and trafficking. Policies are among the tools that foster systems and behavior change and move society in a forward direction. National and international policymakers focus on enacting policies to advance the rule of law and stimulate social and economic development. The Kyoto Declaration amplifies the existing international legal framework for public, private, and civil society stakeholders to take actions in suppressing current and preventing emerging global challenges. As a member of the civil society sector, I greatly appreciate the enhanced legal framework and the integration of practical capacity building targets in the declaration this year. However, the advancement of crime prevention and criminal justice is likely to remain a theory of change without the implication of tangible implementation mechanisms. One of such mechanisms is the effective integration of the civil society sector in the decision-making system not only at the implementation level, but at the policymaking and review level. This begins by legitimizing the link between the engagement of civil society organizations with the populations that they serve and the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the legal structures on which these goals stand, such as the conventions and the resolutions. Acknowledging and officially classifying the participation of civil society organizations in the work as an integral driver for crime prevention and reforms within the global criminal justice system would be a great start. That's why I was very excited to be part of the uh, Crime Congress this year, so I could not only be a voice for civil society, but also analyze and see how civil society is integrated, not only in the declaration, but in the discussions and the implementation mechanisms that are meant to be put in place for future actions. Thank you very much, Gerson. And Syria, you're dealing every day with an incredibly broad cross-section of civil society groups. So, and, and you're looking at issues such as extortion and disappearances related to organized crime. Why was it important for you to bring their voices and experiences to the Congress? Thanks, Yen. As you have mentioned in your recent publications, it has always been challenging to bring civil society into this forum. And the pandemic and this new format did not make things easier. However, a huge logistic effort took place and we were all there. And when we're talking about conferences, interpreters, volunteers, agendas, participants, declarations, negotiations, so many things that have to happen to put together such a large and important event like the Crime Congress, it is easy to oversee the painful reasons why we're doing this. And in my opinion, that part of the human suffering should be right and center of the discussion. The disappearances related to organized crime, the impact of this crime in the family structures, how it's related to extortion that then leads to displacement, that leads to smuggling. But I want to hear this from the people directly involved. The first responders to organized crime, not just the official stories or just the versions of researchers trying to measure the impacts of crime or the success indicators set by standards of the International Civil Service. I prefer to have these communities speaking for themselves, having a platform, leading a discussion. And as Gerson said, having decision-making power even in the implementation mechanisms. 
Otherwise, this Congress becomes an eco chamber, another selective closed space that may end up circulating the same recycled ideas that have not taken us very far. So if we want room for innovation, this United Nations Congress should give room for other perspectives. Thanks, Syria. And you've you've spoken there about the danger of the Congress turning into um, an echo chamber and civil society essentially um, not having as much agency or as much say over what happens. So I'm going to I go first of all, I look backwards and John Paul, from your perspective, you've, you've attended many crime congresses and been involved with the UN system over an, a number of years. And when the congresses were happening before 20 years ago, before the 2000s, how was civil society traditionally engaged and how was it designed so that civil society could impact the discussions there? Thank you, Jan. Actually, it's very important to say that before 1980, the Congress was almost only built by the civil society. We should uh, remember that even the Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice Program came at the origin from the Penal and Penitentiary Foundation, which is uh, an NGO, which had even the Resilience Fund of the Congress and all of this uh, crime prevention and criminal justice program. And uh, the program was led by a committee of experts. And then the, the Congress served as a parliamentary body, I would like to say, for the crime program. Up to the moment we uh, arrived in the 90s at the change in the East and in the, in the format, and the Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice Commission was established. Then, of course, more and more the uh, member states were engaged, which was a very good element. But the Congress was still kept in order to have, besides the engagement of member states in the Commission, a body in which the voice of the NGOs, civil society, academia, experts, individual experts even, should be very present in the crime program. Because uh, as far as the crime program is concerned, especially for organized crime, you need to have uh, studies like the report that GI launched uh, during the Kyoto Congress. You need to have all these in-depth studies, which are not reflected in uh, the Kyoto Declaration anyway. So somewhere, what is important is to have a balance between the participation and the leading role of member states, of course, but also the very in-depth analysis and also the voice of the people who suffer from organized crime, who suffer from crime itself. That's where the design of the new program where came from. And now here, we have not enough disbalance anymore. And I think that with the support of GI, we can probably do more on that aspect. Thank you, Jean-Paul. I think that's an in, uh, incredibly important point as we at the Global Initiative have been you know, looking at this Kyoto Congress and the declaration that was adopted by member states. You know, what struck us was how the support or the inclusion of civil society has been um, through the declarations and through the participation at the Congress has been gradually watered down or weakening over the years. And it seems, you know, the key point that you that you mention is the creation of the UN Commission 
on crime prevention and criminal justice, which uh, put the member states more in the driving seats and civil society doesn't have the same role as it's historically had. So as we go forward, we're interested in seeing what the communities and those civil society organizations working on the front line against organized crime, what they think of this Congress and this declaration, and maybe what they felt was missing. So Syria, do you think that partners and your grantees in the Resilience Fund are paying attention to what was agreed and discussed in Kyoto? And what impact do these kind of meetings and declarations like we saw at the Congress have on grassroots activists and community groups? Actually, I don't think this Congress is very familiar to a lot of people challenging criminal governance on a daily basis. Activists in the Resilience Fund Network are dealing with attacks against them pretty much, you know, every week, literally some of them struggling to survive. So something that happens so far away about ideas that are quite abstract doesn't really resonate with their daily lives. And of course, a lot of civil society organizations from all over the world are paying attention and following closely and doing tremendous work to earn their place uh, at the table, like, like Rafa International. But I would say that most of the people we work with in the Resilience Fund are small organizations, collectives, grassroots groups dealing with extreme circumstances, often very dangerous. So this makes these conversations almost part of a parallel universe. But I think this is also an opportunity for us, for the Crime Congress, to bridge that gap and make international instruments and this forum relevant at the ground level, not just papers or or high-level ideas that don't relate to people's lives. And of course, this perception comes from my personal experience because I remember when I first joined the staff of the Secretariat of the International Narcotics Control Board in Vienna and became aware of all the work that goes behind organizing these multilateral efforts against drug trafficking and organized crime, like the board sessions, the CCPCJ, the COP, etc. But despite the massive efforts and investment of resources, most of the themes being discussed uh, felt very disconnected to the reality I grew up with, to the daily reality of my family right now living in Sinaloa, Mexico, which, as you know, is a state in the north of Mexico that has historically dealt with issues of drug trafficking and violence. So this lack of awareness comes from both sides, I think. But in the Global Initiative and in the Resilience Fund, we see this as an opportunity to build this bridge and connect the international community to this local network of activists. And by the way, we're starting soon capacity building sessions for our grantees and partners that have these objectives in mind. Thank you, Syria. And Gerson, you spoke in quite stark terms about the situation as you see it with regard to armed groups, organized crime in Haiti. And did you see that situation and your priorities reflected in the Congress and in the declaration that was adopted by member states? What do you think is missing? Thank you, Ian, for this question. This is a very uh, important question in response to the crime situation, not only in Haiti, but globally. This is my, what I've noticed, and many activists and actors in the civil society has noticed in respect to policies. What we've seen is that international policies often leave behind the very people that they intend to protect, which are the people at the community level. The Kyoto Declaration is no exception. To, to this rule. <laughs> this is due in part to a lack of recognition of the work of NGOs on the ground. 
and community-based organizations. Community-based programs such as the Resilience Fund Initiative provides direct support to victims of crime and help launch advocacy efforts that promote human rights and reduce corruption at the highest level. But this work and us as civil society actors are often on the background and our work is not recognized, is not placed where it's supposed to be placed in the declaration and in international policies in general. Undoubtedly, the transnational crime prevention policies and guidelines, such as the Kyoto Declaration, are high-level blueprints for providing new approaches to combating crime. On the other hand, the expertise to evaluate and meet populations' punctual and structural needs is best found within the civil society sector, the pool of knowledge and multilateral experiences that the sector has to offer. That includes the NGOs and the grassroots organizations. I do not see the intent to fully integrate, align, and use that knowledge in the declaration so far. And I hope to see that. And also, I should add that often government agencies lack the capacity and the resources to implement these policies and these ideas or in the declarations and in the policies. That leaves behind uh, communities and individuals. And these communities and individuals are, are exposed to crime and dangerous situations. That occurs within agencies in low, both low and high income countries, as I've worked with both on crime related issues. The community needs that government agencies fail to identify or lack the capacity to meet are often recognized and addressed by civil society stakeholders. Uh, this happened at an important scale in low-income countries. For example, four years ago, a 16-year-old girl, Haitian girl, who was being sexually exploited by high-ranking government officials for years, finally gathered enough strength to report him to the, to, the, to the authorities, to the police. At that point, her life and the job of the police investigators were at risk. Rafa jumped in and took legal custody of that young girl and placed her in our aftercare program. And with our work with the legal system, we hired legal representative for her. That led to the perpetrator receiving a life sentence by the court. This was a case that captured the attention of the general population and became a beacon of light for the Haitian criminal justice system in respect to gender-based violence. So this is the kind of work that we do on the background, but that is not recognized in the policymaking system platform or the implementation or even recognize that we, the NGOs and the community-based organizations are so valuable to promoting the advancement of criminal justice in making the world a safer and better place for this generation and future generations. Thanks, Gerson. I think that's a really important point in that you know, what you're saying is not that civil society is better and wants to do things ourselves. What we're saying is civil society can support those law enforcement and criminal justice efforts that are being promoted in texts like the Kyoto Declaration, but you know, there isn't the quid pro quo back the other way where civil society's role is recognized. And I think one of the important ways in which the global initiative at the Congress addressed these issues was through the launch of our report on the global illicit economy. And Jean-Paul, you were part of that panel. And, and this report looks back at organized crime efforts and organized crime since the year 2000 and describes how it's grown exponentially 
Unfortunately, the international response to it has not evolved at the same pace or, or, or with the same innovation that crime has. So when you read the Kyoto Declaration, do you think it, it shows a sufficient understanding of the trajectories of organized crime and where it's going in the future? Uh, this is really something desesperating because I think that the Declaration, even as not a real chapter on transnational organized crime, and it means that I am not sure that uh, the delegates have captured the magnitude of uh, the transnational organized crime impact, not only on the economy, but on the dignity and on the, on the respect of the dignity of the people. That's, that's where I don't see, in the declaration itself, enough attention given not only at the civil society as cooperating with member states, but also to give the voice to the victims, to give the voice to the victims of, not only for on crime, but organized crime. For example, the, the declaration has not captured the, the, the magnitude of transnational organized crime at the point that even the, when you look at the paragraph 62, which speaks about uh, the conventions, Convention Against Corruption and the Organized Crime Convention, not even transnational, means that we have not seen the magnitude of that threat. And while at the same moment it is spoken about the effective anti-corruption efforts, actually corruption has to be considered as one of the pillars of organized crime and not, you know, isolated from, from it. And finally, I think that the fact that the declaration stressed the uh, primary role of UNODC in countering transnational organized crime doesn't take into consideration the scary resources that the UNODC has to face this phenomenon. And without the support of civil society and without the support and the cooperation, the support of the civil society and the cooperation of the civil society also, I think that it is not possible for, for UNODC to achieve those goals. And we know very well that, for example, for the Global Illicit Economy Report, we can see that uh, it's a, a very dangerous threat that transnational organized crime is one of the most important threats in the world. It will probably hamper with a, a huge effect the SDGs of the United Nations, of all the countries. So it means that I don't see enough visibility for, for fighting organized crime in that declaration. And it is like dispersed in the declaration, which speaks about the rule of law, which speaks about uh, crime prevention, which speaks about this or that, but not focusing on one of the major threats of the world, actually, and uh, a threat which really is a, a big counter effect for the promotion of the SDGs. So thank you. Thank you, Jean-Paul. Uh, I mean, I think everybody has painted a, a serious picture of the challenges we're facing, and we have to look forward and see what, we, what we're going to do to respond to these challenges. We don't yet know where the next Crime Congress will be, but the world will move on and crime will continue to proliferate and, and diplomacy around these issues will continue and law enforcement and civil society efforts, criminal justice efforts, crime prevention efforts will continue. So as the diplomatic community moves on from the Crime Congress, what, what would you say in, in one sentence 
to those diplomats and other officials involved to describe what they should prioritize in regard to responding to organized crime and trying to change where organized crime is going. In one sentence, if you can, I'm going to go back, straight back to you, Jean-Paul. First, in the regional preparatory meetings, let's, let's have a chance to have preparatory meetings of the Congress, let's have a chance to have a good and solid part of the civil society involved in these regional preparatory meetings. And second, more thematic discussions between member states and civil society. And the voice of the victim should be heard, finally, in order to achieve, in order to achieve what? The SDGs, together. Otherwise, there is no SDGs. Thank you, Jean-Paul. Syria, can I ask you the same question, please? Yes, and I'm going to agree with Jean-Paul for my last sentence. Keep listening to the real stories of the people who are on the ground, confronting organized crime every day, because they're not just beneficiaries or victims. They're much more. They're also your first responders. Thank you, Syria. And last but not least, Gerson. I concur with Jean-Paul. Uh, victims of crime deal with lifelong trauma and practical challenges that impedes on their advancement. The multifaceted needs of crime survivors are not adequately captured in, in the Declaration and in other international policies. While I don't expect policy experts, policymakers to effectively address the lack of a victim-centered approach, I fully expect a much greater participation and integration of civil society practitioners who deal with crime and criminal justice issues from a victim-centered approach. Thank you, Ian. Well, thank you to all of our contributors today. And thanks to all those who have contributed throughout this series, which we kicked off over a year ago. Over that time, we have heard from a wide range of experts, all of whom have brought different perspectives and priorities. But through their expertise and their knowledge, they have demonstrated the value that multi-stakeholder partnership and exchange has for the Crime Congress and for UN efforts to prevent and counter organized crime more generally. Unfortunately, this year's Congress has produced a declaration which is markedly less supportive of civil society inclusion than recent comparisons. And the process that produced the declaration was largely closed to civil society in contrast to the crucial role that non-governmental actors have played throughout the history of the Congress. This reflects a more widespread closing of the space available to civil society across the UN and within countries around the world. When we look at the trajectories of organized crime, as the Global Initiative demonstrated at the Crime Congress with the launch of our report on the global illicit economy, we can see that illicit markets are becoming more diverse, lucrative and innovative. And as long as civil society is not fully included, the international community's response to organized crime cannot be enough. At the local level, civil society individuals and groups have the data, insights and experiences that states do not have. They are the primary victims of organized crime, and in many cases, the first responders to organized crime. At the global level, the threat that organized crime poses to achieving the sustainable development goals is as great as ever. And the local and global non-governmental information expertise and participation has to be part of our whole of society response. So as we continue on the road beyond Kyoto, we will continue as the Global Initiative to provide a platform for civil society seeking to engage and influence the UN response to organized crime. More analysis of these responses being discussed and implemented at the UN 
or feature in our podcasts and other multimedia outputs. Check out the Global Initiative website and social media for updates. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Tennant.